Well, bless the Lord, O my soul. And what does it say? Let one, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. What a privilege it is to be back yet once again in Kensington Temple. It's been a delight through my good friend of the years, Reverend Dr. R.T. Kendall, to come to know the leadership of this church. And we pray today, even has been mentioned, for Colin Dye. It's a delight to meet the new pastor here, Simon, good to see you, Gabriel, and other friends. I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ in the state of Texas. That's where I teach at Baylor University, which is the oldest university in that state. And they pray today, many of them, my colleagues, for this service and for this hour. It's a delight to be back with you here. I'm always heartened and encouraged when I come by Kensington Temple. If this sermon had a title today, I might call it The Giants Just Keep On Coming. <laughs> There's something about giants that fascinates most people. I guess it's rather obviously they're just real big people, and it fascinates it. The tallest giant actually measured in human history that can be empirically verified, was witnessed and validated, was a man named Robert Wardlaw. He lived in a tiny town in the state of Illinois. He was measured at eight feet, 11.1 inches. He lived from 1918 to 1940, and so far as the Guinness Book is concerned, he's the tallest person on record that can be verified. He's gone now. The tallest person alive is a man named Kirsten Solon in Turkey. He's a mere eight feet, 2.4 inches, very much with us. Tried to play basketball. He was much better at defense than he was offense. You can imagine <laughs> that. And then there's those people who call giants who comparatively really were. How many of you remember the French wrestler Andre the Giant? He was only seven feet four inches. I think he was called a giant because he weighed 540 pounds. Then there are fictional giants they would remember all the way from childhood. You remember Jack and the beanstalk? What did the giant say? Fee, fire. Oh, I see you all speak giant here. Foe, <laughs> fam, I smell the blood of what? Yes, all right. There's even advertising giants. The Jolly Green Giant. He was an advertising icon for a certain brand of peas. In the passage we're looking at today, in a strange little corner of 2 Samuel, if you join me in the 21st chapter of 2 Samuel, you're going to read the story about a giant who had four sons. The giant's name was Saph. And each of his four sons tried to come after that giant killer whose name was David. Follow after this with me, if you will. Now, this passage is full 
of ancient Hebrew names. If you're a daily Bible reader, it may be one of those chapters which you kind of skim over every other verse. But there's a word in it. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if you remember it, chapter 10, verse 6, these things were written as an example for us. So let's see what we find out. 2 Corinthians 21, 15. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants went with him, went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbibanob, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, and he was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now it happened afterwards that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai the Heshethite killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Again. There was a war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jeroboam, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Then, again, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Strange little corner of the Old Testament, but it hands to you the reality that sometimes when you think your giant fighting days are over, they still come at you. <laughs> now, David got famous for killing a giant. If you go out here and ask a secular person, a humanist, a rationalist, even an unbeliever in the streets uh, who killed Goliath, many of them who don't know anything else about scripture might say, well, everybody knows David killed Goliath. He got famous at his beginning for killing a giant. This is not at the beginning. This is toward the end. He's not young, he's old. He's not resilient, he can't bounce back. In fact, what caught my attention about this passage first was David grew faint. You can read about all of his life and that's a shock, a surprise, an astonishment. You don't expect to hear that about this charismatic, gifted giant killer. But this isn't the beginning. This is the end of his life. At the beginning, he could bounce back, but he thought his giant killing days were over. Now, if you know anything about his story, you would understand why David's tired. First of all, he had vaulted into national fame when he was a very young man, the eighth son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, unknown country boy, killing the national, the national antagonist, and suddenly he's thrust into national. That'll take it out of you just by itself. 
But then he had to deal with Psycho Saul. Psycho Saul, you know, he's the definition of love-hate. You can put him in the OED as the picture. There he is, love-hate. One day he loved David, the next day he hated him. David playing his harp, Psycho Saul loved him. And then all of a sudden he tried to pin him to the wall with a javelin. That'll wear you out. <laughs> and then when he's 47 years old at the height of his power, this man who wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, stays home when the kings go to battle, looks down from his roof on Bathsheba and sends her a text message. <laughs> Happy hour at the palace. 5 p.m. dress, business casual, you know all that. And he commits adultery, murder, and covers it up at 47 years of age, and it takes it out of him. But that's just the beginning of giants. Then his own son, Absalom, turns against him. His own general turns against him. His family blows up. And by this time, David is tired. And yet, he faces not one, but four more giants after he thinks his giant fighting days are over. <laughs> I wonder if there's one somebody you here today that this doesn't have your thumbprint on this passage. If this were a picture frame, you could put your face inside this frame. I thought my giant fighting days were over and they're still coming at me. There's a word that happens over and over here. Did you see it? It's the word again, again and again. Again appears again. <laughs> the word Philistines occurs 200 times in the book of 2 Samuel. When you think those pesky Iron Age people are gone, they just keep on coming back. And David discovered as an old king, his giant fighting days were not over. In fact, four of them came after him in a row. What, what, what? Wouldn't it be good in the Christian life if you just had one big battle? You know, out there somewhere, it'll be like Moses crossing the Red Sea, but when the sea swallows up Pharaoh, it's over, I'm home free. Or like the fire falling on the mountain at Mount Carmel, when it ate up the sacrifices, just one big fire and it's gone. When I became a Christian, I was eight years old, just 20 years ago, no, not really. <laughs> it was back in the years of the Cold War in the United States during the Cold War with Russia, we had what we called duck and cover drills, and that is we'd get down under our school desks in case there was an atomic bomb. Cold War was a very real thing. I grew up in a city where the Air Force base was one of the major targets had there been an atomic war. And I used to daydream about the communists taking over. Uh, I was in what we'd call the third grade, and I would imagine them coming down the boulevard in front of our school, calling all of us out onto the playground and saying, if you deny Jesus, you will live. If you confess him, you will die. And I dramatically step out as eight. Say, I confess Jesus. They mow me down right there. Bury me in the schoolyard. Little tombstone, here's where Joel died for Jesus. <laughs> Never happened. No big dramatic thing like that ever happened. 
I used to think I would write one big check and it would all be over. Instead, it's been a few pennies here, a few pennies there, and a lifetime goes by of one giant after another. In an unguarded moment, I say an irate word and there is a giant. I get into the battle on the faculty with somebody and there's another giant. <laughs> I start a fire trying to put out another fire and there's just a bigger fire. I make an unwise financial decision and there is another giant. See, sometimes we think the Christian life is like one big dramatic volcano and when it blows its top, it's over. But really, it's more like the Grand Canyon. What do I mean by that? Remember a year ago, May, on the big island of Kalai, Kalai there was this volcano. Kalai, May 8th, erupted 2018. You may have seen it on the news. Fire, lava, smoke. The island shook. 700 houses were destroyed. But you know, the Christian life is really not like one big volcano. It's more like how the Grand Canyon was formed out in the west of the United States. Colorado River flowed, some people think for six million years, one little grand of sand at a time until 18 miles wide, 277 miles long, it was eaten away. You see, there's no guarantee in the Christian life that the giants stop coming. In fact, the greater son of David, Jesus told you just the opposite. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. He never sugarcoated it. He never put a false facade on it. He never put a fake door at the beginning of the Christian life. There's an interesting website called Real Fake Doors. And that is you can buy a fake door. He never put a fake door at the beginning of the Christian life, he said, in this cosmos, in this world, you will have. But then he said, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. That's why in Romans 8, the apostle Paul invented a word in the Greek New Testament, hupernikamain, it means we're more than conquerors. But church, if you're more than a conqueror, it means there's something you have to conquer. That has two sides. The giants just, well, you say, what about it? Well, well, here it is. Did you see the first giant? Here's David, his servants. They went out fighting the Philistines and David grew faint. Then Ish, Ish Bibanob, that's the giant's name. Ish Bibanob, that's a Bible name that never caught on, did it? Ish Bibanob. It's interesting, the Hebrew language is all consonants. Some translate this word, Dodo the giant. I kind of like that, it sounds like a giant. It says Dodo the giant lived in an inaccessible castle. Now, if you're looking at a new King James, it says he had a new, a new, and the next word's in italics. That means it's not there. He had a new weapon, whatever it was, new armor, new spear, new mace. And he came after David when David was weary. I want to say something parenthetically here. Did you see in verse 17, the men of David swore to him saying, you shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. David was the theocratic king. That is, he was the national spiritual leader. He was the lamp, the light 
of Israel. And they said, we're gathering around you. You're not going out anymore or one of these giants will put out the light of our nation. Now, please come close to me. I want to say something parenthetically. Spiritual leaders are under attack today worldwide. If you read the world record of Christianity, every month, nationally, internationally, a spiritual leader falls under attack. That's why the men around David were wise enough to say, we're gathering around you. You don't go back out. You need to be protected. I want to say this church and exhort you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, pray for your spiritual leaders. The weapons of our warfare are what? Not carnal. That is, there's no amount of human help that can help a spiritual leader. The weapons of our warfare are what? Spiritual. For pulling down what? Strongholds. And those Hebrews around David understood, don't go out anymore. We don't want to put out the light. Pray for your leaders. They protected their leader. <laughs> you know what happens when a spiritual leader falls? It's like General Howe. General Howe was 33 years old, 261 years ago, in what in the United States we call the French and Indian War. He was an Englishman. He was the youngest general in the army. And on the day of a preliminary battle, a skirmish that didn't make any difference, he threw himself into the battle and this brilliant 33-year-old general was killed in a preliminary skirmish. The result of that was when the big battle came the next day, 2,200 of his troops fell. They were so discouraged. That's why we need to pray for spiritual leaders. We, and I include myself, we are always vulnerable. Pray for spiritual leaders. But I want to go into this a little further. You have to face giants when you think your giant fighting days are over. But lean into this another way. The giants just keep on coming. If there's anything in this, here's the interesting thing. Here's a, here's a giant. The giant had four sons. And they came one after another after David. The first one we've just read about, he was dispatched of. But then look. Again, there was a battle at Gob. Gob, if you put that into your GPS, it wouldn't show you anything today. Gob was in Gaza. And that is where the Philistines lived. What is today? The Gaza Strip, west of Jerusalem. That means that he had to go fight this giant on the giant's own turf. Let me tell you a good thing. When you know and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Every game can be a home game, not an away game. <laughs> but he had to go fight him on his own turf. But then look again. The next giant was at Gob number two. But look who the next giant was. Did you see it? He was Goliath's younger brother. Now you talk about mad, angry. I don't know if he was even born when David killed Goliath. Can you imagine decades of family conversations about that man, David, who got to be nationally famous because he killed your older brother. Now, this man says, I've got my time. He's old, he's weak, he's tired, he's vulnerable, I can get him. But then the fourth giant comes. This is what arrested my attention about this passage. Did you see it? The fourth giant comes. You can read it there in verse 20. A man of great stature, 
who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Now it's one thing to face a giant. It's another thing to face a violent giant. It's another thing to face an armed violent giant. But what about one with six fingers and six toes? Now this is a human condition. They say out of every 1,000 live births, seven people have an extra digit or an extra toe. It just happens. It's, uh, it's part of human genetics. Drew Carey, uh, the comedian, says in his biography, he has six toes. There was a blues player in Chicago, Illinois, named Hound Dog Taylor. He had six fingers. He made a very good guitar player. He had an extra finger to play the guitar. Now, can you imagine? Here's David. Old time. He's already faced three giants. He's breathing. Thank God it's over. And here comes one with an extra finger to grab him and an extra toe to kick him. <laughs> the giants just keep on coming and it doesn't get any easier. And you say, well, that might've been true of David, but I wonder, I wonder up here in this balcony around where you're tiered up to the very top of this church on this lower tower, either side, the transepts. There's one somebody, this has your thumbprint on this passage. You'd say if, if you were putting in a picture frame someone facing giants, you could put a gilded frame around me. I thought I was through with battles. And you know what's happened to you if you're a believer because you're continuing facing battles. Revelation 12:10b calls Satan, the devil, our personal enemy, the accuser of the brethren. And when you're facing giant after giant after giant, he comes and whispers this sinister, malignant, malicious lie, malevolent in your ears. If you were really a Christian, you wouldn't be facing these kind of giants. That's a lie out of the pit of hell. And that's what was happening. And I wonder if there's one somebody here today, just one somebody, you. And the reality is when the giants are coming at you one after another after another, if you yourself aren't hearing the, the enemy, ah, if you really, it's like Job's friends, remember them? Job's friends, one of them, Bildad the Shuhite, it's the shortest man in the Bible, the Shuhite, but anyway, Bildad, uh, he came to Job and said, you know, you're not real. The enemy is saying that to you. I, I, I want to give you a word here that's not true. I want you to look at a great Christian life. I could pick out many of them, some from this city, from, from elsewhere. Elizabeth Elliot, a name that belongs to Christian history and mission history. Elizabeth Elliot was a brilliant young lady student of classical languages, Hebrew, Latin, Greek. She became a Wycliffe Bible translator. She could have become a distinguished professor holding a chair at an American university. Instead, she gave herself to go live with some people in Ecuador and, and translate the New Testament after she invented a language for them, what the Wycliffe people do. She was engaged to Jim Elliott. And yet when they sent them as Wycliffe translators, they put this engaged couple on opposite sides of a mountain so they couldn't see one another for three years. That was a giant. Then they got married, had a baby named Valerie, 
But Jim Elliott and four other Wycliffe translators were trying to reach a people called the Alca Indians and in a riverbed of Ecuador, they were speared to death. He and Nate Saint and three others. And there was Elizabeth with a baby who would never know her father facing giant number two. She went back to the United States around Gordon-Conwell Divinity School. She wrote a famous book, Through Gates of Splendor, that shook the Christian world with the testimony of her husband, Jim. She became a professor. She married a second time, only to watch her professor husband disintegrate with cancer, giant number three. She established an international radio program. <laughs> Edifying Christian, she finally married again a chaplain and then, giant number four, she contracted dementia, lost her number one asset, her mind, passed on at age 88. And yet the reason we remember Elizabeth Elliot is not because her life was smooth or unimpeded or unhindered and that nothing retarded it. We remember her because in the face of giant after giant, she maintained a triumphant Christian testimony. And now she belongs to the ages because she knew the giant killer. Now there's somebody listening to me here or beyond here on this streaming service, wherever you're sitting, wherever you're listening, and you think somehow a real believer ought to be immune, really? This is David. This is David who has the greatest promise in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, 14, a remarkable promise. There will always be somebody on your throne. It's not gonna be vacant forever. This is David who wrote the 23rd Psalm. This is David for whom Jerusalem is named, the city of David. This is David who's the ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ in his own genealogy. If you had taken Jesus' DNA to Ancestry.com, it would have pointed back on the human side to David. And yet he's not exempt. Mm -hmm. You set your cell phone down on a cabinet. You leave it there. There's a text message from someone who shouldn't be sending a message and suddenly they're the third spoke in the wheel. You go to a job where you've sat in the same cubicle for 30 years and all of a sudden someone shows up and gives you 15 minutes to pack your stuff up and they send you out the back door with a security officer. You no longer have a job. You go into a physical, same doctor you've seen, says the same things he says every year, exercise more, lose weight, don't eat this, don't eat that does the same test, but this time the phone rings and you get right back over here. You've paid your taxes faithfully for decades, everything's smooth, and then all of a sudden there's a letter. Giants. And you might say, Joe, man, this is really a downer. Is there any good news about this? Yes. I want to give you the good news, but, but come close to me. One reason many people don't believe the gospel is good news is because they don't think there's any bad news. <laughs> the reason the gospel is good news is because it rescues you from bad news. If there's no bad news, you don't need any good news. <laughs> now here's the good news. 
God prearranges people to come beside you when you're facing your giants. See, you say, I've left some things out. Yes, I did leave some things out because I wanted to bring them up right now. <laughs> in every one of these instances, an unexpected prearranged person came alongside by divine prearrangement. Did you see it? Here, here's giant number one. But look what happens. Verse 17, Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine. Abishai was David's nephew. Read about him. He'd been with him from the very beginning. He was with him when Psycho Saul tried to kill him. He was with him when he lived in caves. He'd been a commander in his army. God raised up somebody who knew him and he stood beside him. Can I take a leaf out of my own life's journey? It's a testimony. Let me tell you about testimonies. Nobody with a testimony is at the mercy of anybody with an argument. Let me say that again. Nobody with a testimony is at the mercy of anybody with an argument. It's like the man who said, I once was blind, now I see. Right in the middle of my ministry, I've been preaching 54 years now. Started when I was two. No, not really. <laughs> right in the middle of my ministry, I had a great disruption, a difficulty. Left one of the largest churches in the United States. Long story, won't go into it. And I moved from a very large house to a tiny apartment from being on national television, just disappearing. Moved from a very comfortable situation to selling funerals door to door. Now, I don't know if you do that here in the UK, but we, this, one of the jobs in the United States is door to door funeral selling. It's really kind of a hard sell when you get down to it. <laughs> Nobody wakes up in the morning saying, hey, let's buy our funeral today, dear. Uh, in that church, the first week I was pastor, I went to visit a wealthy business owner in a mansion in the Turtle Creek area of Dallas. I went to testify to him because he was considering becoming a believer. His name was Carl Singer. And uh, I won him to Christ there in his apartment. Very interesting. He was a Chicago Roman Catholic. He'd married a Christian. He was coming to Christ. <clears throat> well, we were casual friends for the next two years. But he knew, he knew that when I, uh, when I became his pastor, he'd be my friend. I didn't even know it. Two years later, when I left that church, Carl called me up. We really weren't good friends, just called me up. And he said, I know you need somewhere to live. And he offered to me the very church, the very house where I'd want him to Christ. He said, come, live here. My son was a student at Southern Methodist University, an expensive private school. Suddenly I didn't have any way to send him. This man that I'd won to Christ, as the first convert in that large church, hardly knew him, said, look, I'll take care of your son's tuition. This man, now, since that time, 27 years ago, has been chair of my ministry board. He's now in his 80s and in every way has stood by me through thick and thin 
and I didn't even know he was there when I needed him. Now come close to me. You will find that when you have giants, God has prearranged somebody to be there. Now I want you to finish. Now look, look at giant number two. Here, David is helped by Sebekai the Hushethite. Now, that's a mouthful, but literally it means he was a Hittite. Now, the Hittites were non-Jews. They were Gentiles. They were mysterious people from somewhere like Turkey. This Turk showed up and killed off one of the giants. That must have been a surprise to David. But let me tell you this. God can bring people in the strangest ways you've never heard of. Could I take another leaf from my life's journey? Uh, about the same time of my life, a man started calling me up when I was in difficult days. His name was Chandler Peoples. He owned a box manufacturing plant. I didn't know him from Adam. He kept calling and saying, Dr. Gregory, I want to come over and see you. And for a number of reasons, I really didn't want to see strangers in those days. And I wouldn't see him. He kept saying, please let me come see you. I finally agreed to see him at DFW airport. I thought he can't do much to me at an airport. So anyway, I met him there and he said, I'm Chandler Peoples. I said, I know you've been calling me. And he said, you don't know me. I said, no, I don't know you. He said, I used to watch you on TV. I said, well, thank you. He said, no, you don't know. He said, I went through a divorce and had a stroke at the same time. And he said, in bed all night, I would listen to your sermon tapes. And it's all that kept me going. I'll do anything you need me to do to be of help to you. He was a Hittite. Now let me say this, it may not be that way, it may be different in shape, form, or size, but God prearrangeth people to come alongside you. He is the God who does not leave you alone. When you face your giants, keep your eyes open. What? Faith is the substance of things, what? Hope for the evidence of things, not what? Seen. God will send somebody. I don't have to go. Look at the next one. It says a Bethlehemite took out the next giant. That is somebody who grew up with David in Bethlehem came to help him. And then another nephew took out old six fingers and six toes. God sent somebody. You will not be left alone when you face your giant. You say, well, I know the Lord will help me. Yes, the Lord will help you, but I want to tell you how he helps you. He helps you with some skin on. <laughs> He makes somebody show up. But wait a minute. We didn't come here today because we worship David. This is not the church of David. <laughs> it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. David is the shadow of which Jesus is the substance. David is the preface of which Jesus is the book. David is the overture of which Jesus is the opera. He's a shadow. Jesus is the substance. In fact, when you look at it, Jesus was born where? In Bethlehem, the city of David. Same place. Read Matthew's genealogy. It says he's the son of Abraham, Jesus is, and the son of David. David was intended to be a shadow of the real giant killer. There's not a person here 
who's like you're gonna face a nine foot tall Philistine giant. But you're gonna face what Jesus faced. When he was born, immediately he faced a giant, Herod the Great, infanticide massacre at Bethlehem, a giant. When he started his public ministry, he went out into the desert and faced down the enemy, the adversary, a giant in the garden, praying, sweat like blood, let this pass for me. He faced a giant. One of his own betrayed him, a giant. One of his own denied him, the number one man, Peter, a giant. And then he faced not one trial. We talk about the trial. He faced six trials in a few hours. One before Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanderton, Pilate over to Herod, back to Pilate. And then he faced the biggest trial of all. The trial that every one of us face. We're finite. We're mortal. We're temporary. He looked into the raw red throat of death. And he went in to face the last giant. And he faced that giant in his own territory. The cold dampness of a tomb. But he broke the marble chain of death against the wall of the sepulcher. And came out and said, I have overcome. And that's his promise to you. I'm not here to play games about Philistines. You're not going to face an eight foot or a nine foot tall Philistine, but every one of you is going to face mortality unless he comes soon. Even so come Lord Jesus. You see, he made you this promise. Be of good cheer. I have what? Overcome. I mentioned early in the sermon, Paul invented a word. It's in Romans 8. Paul was a little bit, Greek, Greek's a little bit like German. You can mash word together. Hooper nicomane. We are more than conquerors. That word has Nike in it. Now, Nike's not just a shoe. Nike was a Greek god. You go to the Parthenon, you'll see a temple to Nike. And every time you see a statue of Nike, it has wings. Because the Greeks knew that victory on a human level can what? Fly away. This is victory without wings. Hooper Nicomane, you are more than a conqueror. I didn't plan to preach this message today. It came to me with a force because it's a word for somebody here today. It has your thumbprint on it. I know who you are. Maybe you're a secularist. You don't know Christ. You're a humanist a rationalist, an empiricist, a hedonist, you live for pleasure, I don't know. But you don't know Christ. Giants will come after you. And you'll face them on your own. Without him. That's why we Christians talk about being saved. The word literally means be rescued. Rescued. There's not one person here who will not need to be rescued from the giants that life brings. And then finally rescued at the last when you stand before almighty God in judgment. If there's a true word in this book, you have an appointment. Now you may have been late for every appointment you ever made. You'll be right on time for this one. You say, won't there be a long line? Long line, he's got all the time in eternity for an interview with you. You will stand in the presence of Almighty God if there's a true word in this book.
Now, if you don't know him, you'll stand there in his presence alone. I think about this now more than ever because I can't be that. I'm certainly closer to it than I ever was. Standing there in the presence of Almighty God, that last giant, death and judgment. I'm so thankful I won't have to mumble anything about keeping God's law perfectly because I haven't. I won't have to try to defend myself and say, well, I paid my bills and all the shallow answers that people give, or I tried to keep the 10, I no, no, no. Thank God at the right hand of God is his ever living son. And when I stand there, he'll say, Father, do you see Joel? Yes, he's right there. <laughs> he said, by my perfect living, I covered him with my living. And by my death on the cross, I covered him with my dying. I've covered him with my living and with my dying. He's mine. That's my hope. I don't want to stand there alone. Somebody else here today say, I'm a believer. Most of us, I hope here, are confessing Christians, born again, blood washed, regenerated, indwelt by the Spirit. If anyone have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. But the enemy's whispering to you. If you were real, you wouldn't be facing this. That's a lie out of hell. And I want to give you the encouragement. Don't let the accuser of the brethren discourage you. What does 1 John 5 say? Faith is the victory. And it's not faith in faith. It's faith in Christ. Who says, whatever giant is coming at you, you are more than conqueror. Somebody here right now, and here's where I wish I were sitting down at your kitchen table over a cup of tea and just talking with you. Somebody needs to be rescued, and you know it. Giant after giant is coming. Jesus is the great rescuer. Somebody else here is a discouraged believer and this message has your name on it to be encouraged in Christ. Eternal God, our heavenly father, father of our giant slayer, even the Lord Jesus, who's the sick healer, the storm stiller, the demon chaser, the dead raiser. Speak now in power. Speak to that person who knows this message has her name on it. Who can't help the fact that this is he. That person who knows this message is addressed to that most discouraged person here. May the Holy Spirit bring both conviction and release. To that discouraged Christian, may this be a moment of liberty in which they claim that which is theirs. They are more than a conqueror. To that person who meets life with a discouraged whine and defeat, might they leave here with a word of praise for the delivering Lord. We ask that the Spirit might move in freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.